Well, good morning. I feel like it's a holiday weekend because everybody's a little sleepy. Are y'all awake this morning? We need to do some calisthenics. We need to do some jumping jacks, some cardio. Okay. Uh, this morning, we're beginning a new series. And so if you have your Bible, I'm encouraged to open your Bible, the book of 1 Peter. Uh, and I'll get there in just a moment. I'm going to give you some background. Uh, I love preaching in series for a lot of reasons. I think the... Uh, the uh, daily diet or the weekly diet of God's Word in a text helps us understand the Bible better and God better, all right? It also gives me, as many of you have heard me say this before, it gives me uh, a really a, a caveat when I come up to something hard and y'all will say, well, the preacher's targeting. No, he's not. He's just preaching through the whole counsel of God's Word, amen, right? And that really helps kind of uh, free me up to preach the text uh, in, in every situation. I want you to know this morning... This is one of the hardest texts to preach. This along with first, uh, excuse me, Ephesians uh, chapter 1. Uh, there's a chapter in Romans that deal with a similar uh, text kind of idea. And as a result of that, every pastor in the world struggles to preach this text. Because there are certain, and I'm going to say it this, and I'm going to say it at the very end, mystery about the salvation we have. There's a certain mystery that God gives to us. If there's, a, if there's not a mystery to God, then that's not a God worth serving. Amen. Because that means our God's small. And we serve a mighty God, amen? A huge God. He is incomprehensible. He is, uh, he is holy. He's set apart. And he's different than us, amen? As a result of that, uh, there are things about God we cannot know. But there are some things about God and his work that we can know. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. But before we do, i got to give you the context of this, this book and this series. Uh, the book of 1 Peter is written by Peter, the apostle. Uh, probably a couple of decades after the ascension. And Peter is writing from Rome to not just Jews. Now, remember, he was the, really the, one of the key leaders in the Jewish church for a long period of time. But now he's writing to Gentiles in the region of Asia Minor. And around the season where, where persecution and suffering is beginning to really ramp up for the church. Now, this is before really a great deal of martyrdom took place, but there is certainly suffering for the cause of Christ. And so Peter writes to that church and says, this is what the gospel looks like in tough days. Hey, that's an appropriate book for us, amen, right? We need to figure out what the gospel looks like in tough days. Like, how do we navigate our Christian faith in the midst of the days that we're in? And this week just kind of highlights that over and over and over again. Now, you know me, I like to bounce across the stage. I'm going to be here and there and everywhere, and I'm a little animated. Today's tone is going to be a little different as a result of the text, okay? The, the pulpit's out, which means one or two things. It's either serious or it's hellfire brimstone. Nobody laughed, right? Well, it's not hellfire brimstone, but it's serious, and it's hard. So I'm going to stay, listen carefully, I'm going to stay as close to the text as I possibly can stay, Amen. I'm not going to variate from that. I have, listen carefully, I have absolutely no agenda in teaching and preaching this text. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to read it, and then we're going to begin walking our way through it. Amen? Okay, here we go. By the way, the preacher's a little nervous to preach this. I'm not afraid, but I'm a little nervous to preach this. Here we go. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and here's, here's one of the reasons why. To those who are, oh, that word, elect, exiles of the Spursian and Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the, another one of those hard words, the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit 
for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Byron preached uh, the next text a few weeks ago, and he so graciously left me verses 1 and verse 2. I appreciate Byron's uh, diligence in leaving these two verses because he wanted to be a blessing to his pastor. But these verses are hard. They're challenging, and they require us to look into the truths of God's Word. And so I'm going to give you eight statements this morning. If you'll have your worship guide out, if you're joining us online, you'll need a Bible and you'll need a notepad to write a few things down. Again, I'm not going to try to to chase a lot of rabbits. I'm going to give you the text. I'm going to give you the points. This morning, and I'm going to give you a lot of cross-references this morning, amen, right? Because I want you to see what the Bible says about salvation. One of our struggles in this conversation is there is names that get associated with this conversation, right? And it really stemmed back about 500 years ago. You've heard of the Reformation, Reformation and, uh, and Martin Luther, and there was others named John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli. Name your next child, Ulrich, okay? Ulrich Zwingli. And they had a certain uh, theological platform that developed out of that. At the same time, uh, there was a group of people who, because of those beliefs, came up with another argument called Arminius, right? And there has been debate in the church for 500 years ever since, right? And there's words like Calvinism that gets thrown around or Reformed theology that gets thrown around or Arminian theology that gets thrown around. And most of us in the church have no idea what they're talking about, right? We just want to live close to the scriptures. Amen? That's where I'm at. In fact, if you put me someplace on some kind of a spectrum, if you could took like one side and one side, I'm somewhere in the middle, somewhere, okay? And depends on how you define the terms of really where I'm at, because I think scripture kind of has it somewhere in the middle of all that. So preachers like, are are you this or are you that? Uh, Let me just say this. I'm biblical. I want to be biblical. Amen? And if that, some of you are like, well, I don't agree with that preacher. Well, let's talk about it in private conversation. That's fine. But listen carefully, this is not a source for debate in the body of Christ. Uh, In fact, this text, along with a couple of others specifically, have been a source of a lot of church fighting. And preacher, why would you even preach the text? Well, because it's there. Number one in your worship guide, the church cannot be afraid of biblical doctrines. We cannot. But we must teach them with both clarity and compassion. We teach them with clarity and we teach them with compassion. Amen. There are nuances of these doctrines that are hard to understand. Praise God is the mystery of God. Amen? We serve a God who's bigger than us. There are nuances of these doctrines that we can understand, and we should understand. And that should lead us to great praise and should be a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul in the midst of troubled times. And I think that's why Peter would use these words in his, in his opening. It's like every letter in the, in, the, in the New Testament begins with these kind of introduction prefaces, right? And, and Paul and Peter uses these words, I think, to remind the church of God's work of salvation and so they could have hope and an anchor of hope in the midst of the trouble and the more trouble to come. It's because we know that our salvation is secure in the person of Jesus Christ that gives me hope in rough days. Amen? So I think he uses these words as a way to encourage the church, not confuse the church. Unfortunately, sometimes these words, because we don't understand these words, they confuse the church. And we allow other things to distort then that, and we get into church fusses. And I grew up in a Baptist preacher's home. Amen? Right? That's why I'm as weird as I am. I was a typical Baptist preacher. 
Man, I, 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 I thank God for my parents, and I thank God for patience, right? But man, I, I was not necessarily the best young man. Thank God for his grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. But I've seen a little bit of church trouble before, right? I remember I, I shared this this week with somebody. I remember being in a deacon's meeting with my dad when some deacons cussed at each other in the meeting. Like some of you are like, if you're not a church person, like, what? That's not supposed to happen. Well, duh. It's not supposed to happen, right? I've seen churches fight over the color of carpet. I've seen churches fight over music styles. I've seen churches fight over doctrinal misunderstandings, right? Not differences, misunderstandings. And all of that is, listen carefully, is Satan's ploy to divide the church. So we preach the full counsel of the scriptures today, but we do it not with division. But I want you to see the beauty of your salvation this morning, the beauty of it. Number two, our sinful nature polarizes our opinions to the detriment of both truth and grace. And so what I want you to do when you look at this text with me, again, I have no agenda. I'm not trying to preach this camp or this camp. I just want to preach the text itself. But I want you to say, I want you to remove my presuppositions to what I think happens in salvation. And I just want to read the Bible for what it says. Okay. Does that make sense? As a result of that, I'm going to eliminate my sin out of it if I can, my opinions out of it. And I'm just going to try to be as true to God's word and let, let the chips fall where they may. Amen. This is where I think it's beauty that we look to the scriptures. Uh, F.H. Carl F.H. Henry said this, In scriptures, God forfeits his own personal privacy that he creates, that his creatures might know him. And so we get to see God for who he is in the scriptures. And so we look to the scriptures. We do not look at theological camps. We don't look at uh, necessarily historical reformed or historical Arminianism. We look to the scriptures for our view of salvation. Amen? And that's where we'll go. First Peter chapter 1, let's start again with verse 1. Peter. An apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. Exiles meaning Christians living in a secular world. We are not from here. In fact, uh, one scripture says we are uh, aliens and strangers. You're weirdos, Christians. You're welcome. You're weirdos. And we should be weirdos. Some of y'all are like, yeah, I preach is really weird, right? Yes, we're supposed to be, and hence the name of the series, different as a result of our faith, Right? We shouldn't, we shouldn't look like the world we live in. There should be distinguishable marks between the Christ follower and the world we live in. And one of the reasons why, now I'm going to start preaching, one of the reasons why the church is so marginalized, mistrusted, and all these other, because there's been no noticeable difference between the church and the culture for far too long. Far too long. And as a result of that, the church is compromised and our witness has been compromised. We are different, church. We are elect exiles and he writes in these places and he begins to describe in some length using two words that we're going to point out today as the preface of our series i want to talk a little bit about and i'm going to go ahead and say these words out loud so everybody gets the <gasps> out of the way election foreknowledge predestination and free will how does that all happen at the same time. Thanks God. Thanks be to God. We have the scriptures that tell us. Number three, salvation, listen carefully, is fully the work of God through Jesus Christ. Atoning work on the cross and his bodily resurrection. Ephesians chapter two says, by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of works lest any of us should boast, right? Our salvation is 100% the work of God through Christ. Amen. 
You can't work your way there. And I want you think about this. And, and this is such a beauty about looking at, we can't, like every other religion, we can't do enough right things. We can't, we can't say enough right things. We can't say I'm sorry enough. We have to trust in the blood of Jesus Christ to cover our sin. Not our, not our own works. And so that salvation, this is why we've, we spent a couple years on the gospel. Because the gospel right now in our modern culture has actually been watered down and, and taken away from. We take away sin. We take away repentance. And we just praise God for all of his goodness and love and his grace and his mercy. And, and all of that's important. But you, you forget about what God did for us in his love. We forget about the price of our sin and the blood that had to be sh shed for our sin. Right? And so we minimize sin. We take the bad news out and we just give the good news, right? But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that you and I are poor, pitiable, wretched, and naked. As Revelation chapter 3 says. And we need Christ. And only Christ can save us. Only Christ. So salvation is fully the work of God through Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about big word. Y'all are mature, right? I mean, y'all can handle these big words today. I want to define some of these words for us. And I'm like, why are you doing this, preacher? Why are, we, why are we doing this? Because these words are there, not targeting, but they're there. So we've got to go ahead and address the elephants in the room, right? So we're talking about soteriology. Say that with me on three. One, two, three. Soteriology. This is not a theology class, but it means the study of, of the Christian doctrines of salvation. That's what we're talking about today. How does this work? Election foreknowledge, predestination, and free will. How does all of that fit together? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God, election of the exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Don't just rush through those words. We'll come back to them. And for sprinkling with his blood, may great grace and peace be to multiply to you. Number four. The doctrines of salvation do not permit pride or laziness. Listen carefully. The doctrines of salvation do not permit pride. Ooh, look at me. I am, excuse me for saying this, the frozen chosen, right? Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. I'm somebody special. Yes, you are special in the eyes of God. But it's by grace, not because of you. Amen. Amen. And as a result, church, if you are a Christian, you are the elect. As a result of that, there's no room for laziness because we are to take, the Great Commission was not omitted, by the way, the Great Commission to the rest of the world, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the doctrine of salvation do not permit pride or laziness. I, I grew up in, a, um, uh, in an era that fought this battle out. And I'm about to get to the specifics, so hang in there. Fought this battle out in my undergrad degree. Uh, the school that I went to was really fleshing it out. Like, where, where are we at in salvation? What do we believe on all the doctrines of grace and all that stuff? How does that work? And there was people who were fighting. I remember fighting in the school cafeteria for one camp or another in front of people at our school who were lost. And I, I was angry about that. Like, I, I'm not in this camp. I'm this camp. I'm kinda, I just want to be here I mean, I don't want to be known by a name. I just want to be known, other than Christ. Let me be known by Christ's name. Amen, right? So I want to be here. This is foolish to fight about in front of lost people. But I also heard in those arguments people who said, well, I'm not going to share the gospel because if God's will to save somebody, what do I have to do with that? Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20 says, go ye therefore and make disciples. That's what we have to do about it, right? God uses us as vessels of the gospel wherever we go. Now, let me tell you how we can, can justify these words, okay? Y'all still with me, right? You good, right? You know how we can justify these words? 
There are two major truths about God that allow all of these doctrines to fit together beautifully for the praise and glory of God. And they are. And the first one is this, the sovereignty of God. Listen carefully. The sovereignty of God. David Platt says this, a high view of God's sovereignty fuels death-defying devotion to global missions. Maybe another way to put it is this, people, and more specifically pastors who believe God's sovereignty over all things, will lead Christians to die for the sake of all people, right? God's sovereignty means this, that God is over all things. Nothing happens without the express written consent of God our creator, amen? Amen. We are not really in control of what happens in our world. We want to be, right? Like, how many of you would say you're a control freak? To a certain degree... Husbands don't nudge your wives and wives don't nudge your husbands, right? We want to be control, all right? But thankfully, we're not, right? Thankfully, the, the sovereign providence of God, God can take ugly and make something redeeming out of it. And God can work all things together for good for those who love God and called to his purposes, right? And so God is orchestrating all things together for good. And he, he's sovereign over all things, and with that, you could talk about a lot of different aspects of God, from his knowledge to his power to his, 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 his divine nature. You could talk about all of those things, but God's sovereignty it helps us. The other thing is this. We'll come back to sovereignty in a minute. And the other thing is this, that God is timeless. Timeless. How many of you enjoy history? Y'all enjoy history? I like history. And in our history books, we're often taught chronology on a timeline, right? And we like to put dots on a crime, timeline, right? I, I specifically like studying Civil War. Like we talk Civil War, World War II. I like, I like war. I don't know why I like war chronologies. It's just interesting to me, like how it all played out and whatnot. And so we put dots here from battles here. And, and we, had, we had moments where there's secession here. And there's finally a victory here. And finally the end here and whatnot. And we like to put God somewhere along that chronology, right? When it comes to the, the, the redemptive history. But God, listen carefully, is nowhere on the timeline of redemptive history. He sits over it, church. Over it. Time is a construct of God. He created it. And therefore, he's not limited by it. Like, we're, we're limited by time. You only get, this may be news to you, you only get 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? That's all you got. Sometimes I wish I had a little bit more. Sometimes I wish I had a little less, Right? Because we feel that every moment we, we are limited by that way. And we're 100 miles an hour going from this thing, this thing, this thing. And most of us, let's just be honest with you, we overpack our schedule, right? We overpack it. We are limited by time, but God is not limited by time. He is, in fact, timeless. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. You know what, what Peter's saying? Our minutes, hours, and seconds don't matter nothing to God. He created it. In fact, look at Genesis, how he created the world. He instituted and made it and made it work the way that it does. So we get the 24 hours a day, and we get the years and the calendars that we got. The creation of God. Psalms, verse, Psalms 90, verse 2 through 4. Before the mountains were brought forth, the psalmist says, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The church said amen, right? You return man to dust and say to him, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it's past or a watch in the night. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, I am the Alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and I am the Omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet, says the Lord God who was, or excuse me, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So what does the scripture teach? That God is absolutely eternal. He's timeless. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. 
John chapter 1, you see the Son. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning, not that he had a creation moment, but he was already there when the beginning took place. When we begin to count the beginnings, God was already there. Now, why is that a big deal? Because when it comes down to the, the order of how things work in our salvation, God is not limited by time in that order. Amen? Sitting above it, it's, it, these words like foreknowledge and election and predestination, they don't scare God at all. Free will, that doesn't scare God at all. Because God sits above all that in his understanding. You and I have finite minds. We don't grasp the full nuances of our salvation, and I don't think we're supposed to. The mystery of our salvation is a good thing. In fact, let me, let me say this. If you ever figure out salvation, first of all, come explain it to me, okay? Number, t- number two, you're wrong. You're wrong. Because there are mysteries you cannot understand. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, uh, Solomon writes, He says, I perceive that whoever, whatever God does, endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so the people may fear, fear before him. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Like God, not limited by our clock. I wish I wasn't limited by our clock on Sunday mornings, by the way, right? Some of y'all say, well, just preach till you're done. But really, what you mean is you preach until my stomach starts hurting, right? At least a little bit of comedy. Come on now. Back to, back to number two, God is sovereign. So God is timeless and then God is sovereign. Number five, God's glory and God's sovereignty anchor all the doctrines of salvation. I've said this often. My theology is anchored in the glory of God and God's sovereignty. But I'll tell you, in the times of the doctrine of salvation, they are exactly what anchors it. The glory of God, his majesty, his power, his glory that he, he is, his Shekinah glory, but he deserves through our actions and through our life and through the creation. Amen? Right? And his sovereignty, that he is above over all things, anchor our understanding of salvation. J.I. Packer said, men treat God's sovereignty as a theme for controversy, but in Scripture, it is a matter of worship. It's a matter of worship. A.W. Pink, and this hits right between the eyes, to deny God's foreknowledge is to deny his omniscience. And this is to repudiate one of the fundamental attributes of deity. His sovereignty and his, uh, his timelessness allows for his foreknowledge and therefore just proves what we already know, that he's omniscient. He knows everything, right? Does that mean, preacher, that I have no free will? I didn't say that. Listen carefully. R.C. Sproul said, there is not one piece of cosmic dust that is outside the scope of God's sovereign providence. Not one. Psalms 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Daniel chapter 4, I love Daniel 4, verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing as he does according to his will. <laughs> among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. Or say to him, what have you done? <laughs> what have you done? Romans, here's one of those other texts, by the way, that scares us. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and following. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to their purpose. We love to put that on T-shirts on our Facebook page, right? But for those whom he foreknew, oh, he also predestined oh, to be conformed to the image of his son. Nor that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he also justified, he also glorified. 
Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand, Proverbs 19, verse 21. God's sovereignty is a beautiful gift. It allows us to see the doctrines of our salvation. Y'all, y'all good? Is this weighty? Is this too weighty on you guys this morning? I know the tone's different, right? But I want you to hear me. We can't skip verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter as much as I'd like to this Sunday. By the way, um, time out. On some Sundays, and as I'm planning sermons, uh, I get to the Sunday morning, and I'm like, Lord, I really don't want to preach this text. And God says, you got to preach it. And every now and then, the Lord calls an audible on a Saturday that I don't, I kind of veer off and do something different. And I prayed honestly up to last night about, Lord, please call an audible. Please call an audible. Please call an audible. He didn't call an audible. Okay. We have to preach verse 1 and 2. R.C. Sproul says, to say that God's sovereignty is limited by man's freedom is to make man sovereign. I think he was right. So this is what allows me to understand the doctrines of election. Election understands that God has elected some for salvation. And that there would be others who would not be elected for salvation. I wish, I wish, I wish that every person in the world would be saved. I wish. And as a church, we should proceed to try to share the gospel with every person in the world. Amen? Because you and I have no clue who's elected and who's not. But God does. We do what we can do, and we trust God to do what only he can do. And so election presumes that there are those who will be saved and those who will not be saved. Predestined is another hard word. That means that God predetermined beforehand who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. Well, yeah, that's what it means. But you take that and the understanding of God's foreknowledge and his timelessness, his sovereignty over all things, because he doesn't sit on a timeline. He can see the choice that we make, and therefore he, in his foreknowledge, can predetermine and he can elect. Amen? But that does not exclude a choice. There is a level of free will that goes alongside of this. On some level of free will, the argument is made, does humanity have free will? On some level, I would say no, because we're bound to our sin. We're, we're changed through our sin. On some level, we really don't because our sin holds us captive. We're really not free to that, but we are able to choose. And the choice is very simple. It's not, it's not, the choice is not, can I work my way to God? Can I be legalistic about it? Can I, can I do it that way? The choice is this, can I humble myself before God, repent of my sin, and by grace through faith, accept Christ as my Savior? That's the choice, Right? So that's the, that's the free will. And all of these work in beautiful harmony together. Number six, God's sovereignty allows for divine foreknowledge, divine election, and human free will. Sitting outside of time, space, history, he sees all things, knows all things because he's an omniscient church. This is what the scriptures teach. This is, this is not a camp, okay? This is not like what happened five years ago. This is not historical, classical, whatever. This is what the scriptures teach. All of these words are there. So what do we do with them? Do we, excuse me for a second, do we freak out about them? No, I don't think we freak out about them. I think we praise God for them. Amen? We praise God for them. Because they describe the mystery of our salvation. And so we praise God for them. Our salvation was meant to be a mystery. Speaking of foreknowledge, Romans chapter 9, verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Foreknowledge. I think of Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, in the call of Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Foreknowledge. Before you were born, I consecrated you. 
more knowledge. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. I think of, of Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, declaring an end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's foreknowledge. I think about election. Here's these hard words in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 and verse 11. Even as I chose us and he chose us and before the foundation of the world that we should be called holy and blameless before him in love. And here's this word. He predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And in him, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Well, that, that seems to define election to some level. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, But we ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief. You see the belief part too? And belief in the truth. So even in election, as Paul is right, there's a level of response for human will, free will. So they, they somehow all marry together. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, I told you I need a lot of scriptures because that's staying right here, okay? Second Timothy 1, verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. John 6, verse 44, what do, you, what do we do with this? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So we can't, we can't deny that there's a level of these words. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, according to the elect exiles and the foreknowledge of God. There's certainly something biblical about election and foreknowledge and predestination. They're all there. But there's also a level of biblical truth to human free will. Let me tell you. John 3, verse 16. You've heard these verses, right? You've heard them, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son... That whoever, here's the human free will, the choice, believes in him, that's your choice. Do you believe or not believe? In him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, there's, there's the choice, right? There's a choice. I will come to him and eat with him and he with, with me. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so salvation, listen carefully now, I'm going to put it all together, is fully the work of God. Fully the work of God. I had no part in it. It was fully God through Jesus Christ. And somehow in his timelessness and his sovereignty, he sits outside of my understanding of history and he sees my heart, church. He sees my heart and he sees my willingness to receive the gospel. And he sees my willingness to choose him. And therefore, in his sovereignty and his timelessness, he pretestins. And he elects and he redeems for his purposes. I don't see the problem in conflict with that. You with me, church? These, these are hard words that I don't think are meant to be hard words. One of, the, one of the greatest struggles we have in our culture today is terms. We are changing definitions of terms all the time in our culture. You with me? 
And so people think they're talking about the same thing. They're really not talking about the same thing. According to what the scriptures teach, there's not a conflict because there's a glorious mystery to it all. I think that's healthy. Deuteronomy chapter 30, the nation of Israel was given this decision. Same understanding. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. That they all exist together somehow. And and now, let me bring you back to the text, okay? Now, this is, we're staying right here with the text, but I had to talk about election and foreknowledge because that's there. Thank you, Byron, for that. I blame it on Byron, all right? I'm bringing back the text. I want you to see what makes it easier to understand this, okay? Y'all with me still? We're almost done, all right? Preach, it was just two verses. You can't preach 45 minutes, two verses. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> Challenge accepted, all right? We'll get it again, verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God... The Father. If you circle in your Bible, God the Father. And the sanctification or being set apart by the Spirit of the Spirit. Uh-oh. I think I'm starting to get the, the uh, hang up something here. And through obedience to Jesus Christ. Y'all just see that? There's the Trinity. They're excited about it. That's the Trinity. Our salvation is best understood in the work of the Holy Trinity. Y'all aren't as excited about it as I am. Like, like when I read these verses, and I get really, I, mean, I, like I study the Bible. I had a lot of theology education here, theological education. And I study the Bible, and I look at these words like, how do I understand that? I understand that through the Trinity, number seven. The doctrine of the Trinity aids our understanding of salvation. Sovereignty of God, the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit, all sovereign, right? Timelessness of all three, all working in conjunction together for our salvation. Let's look again. Foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit. You know how we are sanctified, Christian? Through the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside of you, makes you more like Christ every day, hopefully. If not, you're not listening to the Holy Spirit. You probably should. And through, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, purification because of the blood of Christ. So God is one, but he exists in three persons. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with you all. The word Trinity is never used in the Bible, but it's certainly very clear in the Bible that there is a Holy Trinity. It's another thing about doctrines that I do not understand. Anybody, can anybody describe the Trinity for me, please? Anybody? Nobody, right? It's uh, one of those things that just, psh, praise God. Jesus obviously affirmed it. In Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If there wasn't a Holy Trinity, what Jesus is saying is commit adultery, or idolatry, excuse me, which is spiritual adultery, idolatry. Like if you're going to baptize, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's three different gods, and that's one God, three persons. So Jesus affirms the Trinity. Number last, y'all with me? This is a hard sermon. God. Preach, come on, preacher. Hey, I'll be more fun next week, okay? Cool? Everybody breathe. We use these words in church today. It's okay. All right, number eight. There are things about God that are a glorious mystery. And we've got to be okay with that. We've got to be okay with that. God is still a mysterious God. I think the point of what Peter writes in the first two verses in this preface 
is that he tries to remind, listen carefully, the church of this great salvation, although they don't understand it. Because then that gives them hope in their eternal security in God through Jesus Christ. So come hell or high water, whatever may happen, they know they're good in Christ. They know their salvation has been secured. They don't have to worry, did I do, do enough good things? They don't have to have that, that doubt in the back of their mind. They know that salvation is completely secured in Christ. And so I think these words are actually meant not to confuse us, but to encourage us. And I think as a church, we should look at these words that way. I don't think we should uh, walk around saying, well, congratulations, elect. But I think we should walk around saying, you know what, brother? God's sovereignty, his grace is so good that he has saved our soul. And regardless of what happens this week, God has saved my soul. And I'm thankful for that. The world may shoot at me. Events like this week may happen. But you know what? God has still saved my soul. And so we can say at the end of the day, we can sing that song, It is well with my soul. Romans 11. And I'm done. (laughs) Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has been the mind of the Lord, or known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, or has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Not that we fuss about nuances of our salvation, but we appreciate the full work of Jesus Christ, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection. We can disagree on certain nuances of how that all works, and that's okay. At the end of the day, it is God that does the saving, and the choice is still the same. Do we repent? Do we place the full weight of our trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, or do we reject? That is the choice at the end of the day. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you, Lord, for hard introductions and hard texts because they make us flesh out our faith. And Lord, that's good among brothers and closed circles and sisters and closed circles. We we can conjecture about how all that works, God, and that's all fine because it pushes our faith. And God, I'm thankful for those conversations that I have with people about these things. But I also, Lord, thank you, thankful, Lord, that there's a mystery to it all as well. And there's supposed to be an awe to it as well. And we shouldn't get so caught up in the, the weeds or that we miss the point. And the point is such a great salvation that we have is through Jesus Christ. That's the point. And that is the anchor, sure and steadfast anchor of our soul when times are hard. For the exiles that Peter writes to as time Lord, just like them, we, we, we get to be comforted by these words. These are comforting words, not chaotic words. Because they know, we know, our salvation is secure through Christ. And Lord, so that's, the, that's my prayer today. That is our salvation secure through Christ? Can we say that we have repented of our sin and placed our faith in Jesus, who has done all the work 
And according to your foreknowledge and according to your election and your predetermination or your predestination, Lord, that you still offer that choice. But Lord, would you save somebody's soul today? Father, I pray the preaching wasn't so theologically hard that the listener can understand the simplicity of the gospel. We don't have to know everything about it. We just know we need to repent and have faith in Jesus. God, I thank you for the church. Lord, she's been beat up over the last 2,000 years. There's been glorious moments. There's been terrible moments. But it's your bride, your church, and you love her. And I love her. Father, Lord, I pray that you would grow your church, grow your kingdom. Lord, recommit us all, Lord, to a thankfulness for the gospel, a thankfulness for our salvation. And Lord, help us to share that with the world that we've inherited. Lord, I love you and I praise you and I thank you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me?